Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Uh, we've talked a lot about investing and the brain, and uh, we have very welcoming to questions from our audience. So. Um, if you have uh, comments or thoughts or topics you'd like us to cover, uh, go ahead and visit us at mentalmodelspodcast.com slash questions, and uh, we'll try and do our best to uh, address some of your, your thoughts. What are we going to talk about today, Dan? Well, we covered uh, value investing in a recent episode, um, mostly focusing on Benjamin Graham and his uh, famous approach to um, finding net nets and how Warren Buffett had uh, exploited that technique early in his career um, to great success. We ended that episode uh, starting to talk about a lot of different investing styles and different ways um, one can approach different positions uh, with the acknowledgement that things have changed a great deal since uh, the 20th century. We'll focus today on modern value investing and just how one can try to go about that and be successful at it with the uh, appreciation that there are many more participants in the market. Uh, markets are um, very different than they looked uh, years ago. So uh, let's kick things off. Maybe do you want to go ahead and uh, maybe scope out what does a modern value investor look like and maybe how, they, uh, how they've changed in some ways from what Benjamin Graham would have done? Well, I'll, let's, let's talk a, a little bit about how the landscape has changed. You mentioned before, uh, and we and alluded to, I think, in the last time we talked about this topic, the changes in the availability of information. Uh, so when Benjamin Graham was investing and uh, Warren Buffett early in his career, in order to have access to the financial reports, you often had to go to the SEC's office, uh, or you had to actually go to uh, the company and request that they would send you their quarterly and annual reports. So it was much that the, the, the timing of the information uh, was nowhere near what it is today, where there's a certain limitation. Everybody uh, has access to the uh, quarterly and annual reports. They're posted up on EDGAR, uh, which is the SEC's electronic uh, data website for company filings. Uh, and uh, they're readily available. And those filings are not only viewed by humans, they're viewed by computers that can extrapolate a lot of the quantitative data that, uh, that Benjamin Graham used to take advantage of, uh, make investment decisions, and arbitrage away a lot of the opportunities that Graham was able to identify in the form of net nets and things of that nature. So it sounds like the timing's just gotten a lot faster. Not only does the uh, investor have access almost immediately to um, earnings information, but the market would probably be reacting much faster. Um, maybe one of those aspects that's maybe more important to the value no, investor. I think I think both those things are consistent um, with, and it's and it's difficult to put an appropriate weight. Another big change was uh, the introduction of Regulation FD. Uh, which is the Regulation Fair Disclosure, which it took place in the late 1990s. Uh, essentially, it used to be the case you could sit down with management 
and they would basically tell you what the next quarter was going to look like, uh, you know, and you could invest on it as an institution. That's called selective disclosure. Uh, so institutions like hedge funds had massive advantages over, and typically stocks will react to, to earnings uh, surprises if there's something that was below or above expectations. Uh, so the institutions always had a massive edge versus the uh, individual investors because they could go send somebody out to the company and actually talk to management, and management would tell them what the results would be. Now, uh, that is a violation of Reg FD. If you have a disclosure, you're supposed to make it broadly disseminated. So that advantage, uh, which was available to Buffett at the time, and every other fund manager for that matter, uh, that has leveled the playing field a bit. Now, there's still the availability that managers have to be able to talk to, or to investment managers have to talk to management of different companies, uh, which, you know, there's some incremental benefit they may have by reading body language, uh, you know, listening to the tone of the voice of the manager as they discuss certain things. You may be able to try to read something into it, but that's very fuzzy stuff, and it's certainly, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, inaccurate. But uh, it may give you a little bit of an advantage versus someone that doesn't have that type of access. Now, that also strikes me as a challenge because uh, wouldn't people in the company often present things? We've, we've talked about the framing effect before, kind of giving an overly positive or rosy glow to things. Um, I guess the ability to see through that or, you know find the gaps between what they're saying and what's likely to really happen would be a critical skill there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. There's some disagreement among managers about this. Some people don't want to meet with management for very, that very reason. It, CEO tends to be the cheerleader for a business, right? He's the one who's trying to encourage all the guys to charge the hill, you know, to go ahead and uh, move forward. If the... Uh, CEO doesn't drink the Kool-Aid of the mission of the business, then who will? So they will be biased when you talk to them, which in some cases that can be incredibly telling if they're really dour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things are not good. But it also makes a difference as to, you, you don't know, people have different personalities. So having multiple interactions with the management over time and being able to gauge, you know, how they're speaking relative to how they've talked in the past that makes some some difference but again there are some investment managers that don't want to meet with management at all because they think that just skews uh their ability to objectively look at the data right they want to be more data focused my pushback there is chances are a computer is going to be able to do that better than you are uh and so you need to find some sort of qualitative advantage that you can exploit. Now, there's other things you can do as well. Uh, you can do what's, what Buffett would refer to as the scuttlebutt method, where you would talk to customers, right? You can do surveys of customers. You can talk to suppliers. You can talk to competitors. You can get more of a holistic picture of where the business is operating. You can figure out what commodity inputs are important to the business and can make a difference in margins. And when you see fluctuations in those commodities that may squeeze margins, and then you look at what the sell side's uh, numbers are, what their expectations are, 
you may be able to anticipate something that may surprise the market. Yeah, so that's interesting. You're able to find informational advantages by going sort of indirectly to to look at critical factors that are going to be important that aren't uh, directly going to come from the company. That's something we didn't really cover in the last episode on value investing. It seemed like uh, Benjamin Graham and perhaps Warren Buffett are a little bit agnostic to industries. That's There's not one place you could find a net net. Um, I, I wonder if it's different now that it seems like there are so many industry-specific factors that uh, one could take advantage of because of the wealth of information available. Is that something that's changed dramatically in recent times? Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, there's definitely going to be some industries that are more susceptible to, to allowing you to accumulate data that's not otherwise, that's more opaque in other places. I don't know that that necessarily dissuades investors from investing in the other places, but it also means that if you don't take advantage of that incremental data, then it's going to be kind of like playing cards where you're not getting to see some of them, you know? Uh, So you're playing from an informational disadvantage. Um, A good example is Nielsen data, right? There's Nielsen data on all sorts of foodstuffs, all sorts of uh, various uh, consumer products that you can track and uh, you can see on a really on a month lag at retail how those various products are doing over time and that happens intra quarter so you could actually see before a quarter is struck now i will say all of this high frequency data there tends to be a lot of focus on it and a lot of people are playing that game but that actually puts the advantage back into the the long term investors hands one advantage that an individual investor has relative to most people on Wall Street. On Wall Street, everybody gets paid on an annual basis. And short-term, there's a very short-term focus on the quarter, a very short-term focus on the year. If you can find a situation where a company is suffering in the short-term, but it's just cyclical or it has a, a transient issue that will go away, then if you have a longer-term perspective, you can invest in that company without having all the burden of short-term performance measurement that encumbers Wall Street. And that's a lot of what Buffett does. It's also much more tax efficient, by the way. If you buy a great company, uh, then you can avoid turning your book all the time as new data comes up that says that there's going to be a bump or a wiggle in the short-term performance of the business. That's less investing and more of uh, you know going to the casino and playing the game of you know what's your guess versus mine. Right. So it seems like a better strategy would be that uh, you you have a great company that's solid in many ways, and then uh, if there's a temporary downturn that you you've determined to be transient and that it'll recover, there seems like there's more security in that and uh, more sustainability. One of the things we talked about in a prior episode is just the timing of investments. And I remember one of the, the topics we, we covered quite a lot was the, the news cycle and how a downturn, some sort of uh, seemingly very dire, strongly emotional event can, can affect pricing quite a lot, but that's not necessarily predictive of the company going bad. And so it seems like that's a nice opportunity now if you, you focus on the fundamentals of a business. Uh, if it has a, a temporary downturn, which can actually be facilitated by the news cycle, uh, there could be opportunities there. Yeah, the key is to see if the franchise has been impaired. 
if uh, it, if you find a great business, and usually these are all around you, then you know. And the, the test for a great business is typically, would I pay uh, more for this relative to any substitute? Starbucks is a great example. People that love Starbucks, they love Starbucks, and they don't want something else. Uh, and uh, you know, it has real competitive advantages that you see among certain franchises where if I get a Starbucks in Dallas, it's going to be the same Starbucks that I get in New York or that I get in Tokyo. Uh, It is Starbucks and it's consistent and I can rely upon that brand to be consistent. And, you know, if that's what I drink, you know, I'll pay another dollar for a Starbucks coffee versus a substitute that's, you know, that's a Folgers or something like that. It's not my brand. Uh, So that's very powerful. But say Starbucks has a short-term issue uh, that people get really concerned about that doesn't necessarily affect the business. You know, Chipotle was a good example of this uh, when they had the food poisoning uh, scares that they had uh, about a couple four of years, years ago. ago. Maybe yeah. three, three, four years ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, really suppressed the stock price. And, and recently it's making all new highs. Equifax was a good example. Equifax had the data breach. About a year ago, um, my fund actually, we invested upon that. Chuck Schumer came out on the Senate floor and said that it's the greatest instance of corporate malfeasance since Enron. And that was the bottom right there. Uh, And, uh, you know, that stock appreciated, and I I believe it has made new highs since. Facebook is another example. And that that was very current. I think sometime around February this year, they were before Congress. So the stock was down around $90 a share. Uh, and since then, I want to say it's been the best performing FANG stock, uh, you know, up 40 or 50% or so, maybe even more than that. And Buffett took advantage of these situations. Uh, the salad oil scandal in American Express is an excellent situation where basically Buffett uh, analyzed the fact that American Express had made some loans uh, to this individual who was securing those loans with tanks of salad oil. It turned out that he didn't actually have the salad oil, and American Express was going to have to write a very large check uh, to pay this off. The stock sold off you know, far in excess of the, uh, the liability that they were going to incur. He asked himself the question, does this destroy the franchise? Are people going to stop using the American Express card because of this? And uh, came back with an affirmative that they were not, you know, that that's definitely not the case. Uh, and he took advantage of that and put a very large percentage of his fund into the business. Sure enough, that issue, that transient issue passed. They wrote the check, and then uh, the business continued to compound like it had in the past. And did this happen with Coca-Cola as well in the 1980s when the infamous new Coke release occurred? Yes, yes. So these opportunities come from time to time, and really what they kind of provide you with is the ability to purchase these great companies uh, you know, without, hopefully, without a coincident issue that, that arises, right? Uh, it's, it's somewhat unlikely that they'll have another issue that further brings a drawdown in the stock, but it gives you a little bit of a margin of safety uh, when you buy these great companies. It doesn't mean you can't just buy Microsoft, Amazon, whatever, when uh, they don't have these issues that are present, but these issues kind of, you know, allow you to shake out a lot of the weaker hands and to buy into what's otherwise a great franchise. Another thing we haven't talked about is the, uh, the lack of opportunities now uh, compared in value investing compared to the days of uh, Benjamin Graham or Warren Buffett, for that matter. 
Um, and you've mentioned before that a lot of these opportunities will be found in small cap now. And uh, wouldn't there be more risk associated in, in many ways with those kind of stocks uh, to where it, it'd just be harder to find that, that really clear-cut value difference? Well, I, I always think of these things as a continuum. Uh, you have this continuum of uncertainty. When you look at a net-net uh, where you're buying at a 65% of the uh, networking capital less long-term liabilities for a particular company, uh, there is a large amount of certainty that's available there. Because of automated trading and uh, you know, the, the computers that can see these situations very easily, there's not many opportunities that are available. And it's not just small cap, it's micro cap. I mean, usually these are sub $100 million opportunities that have no volume. It's so easy for you to get that information that uh, you could easily have a computer just make those purchases. Also, you have an agency problem. It's often the case when we have a net net, you have a management that has control of the business that you can't easily dislodge. Part of that is because of the changes that have occurred in uh, the legal system uh, after the 1980s, and you had all the corporate raiders where people were going and breaking down companies for their asset value. A lot of state corporate laws incorporated anti-takeover measures that make that very hard to do today. Uh, whereas uh, back when Graham was active, he actually had a number of different situations where he became an activist and he forced the company to unlock the value uh, that was available, that today that's a harder, harder thing to do. When I think of today's investing, I always think of it in this gradient of uncertainty. And the more value you have in the business that's in the future, that uh, is more uncertain, that is further along that gradient. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it. When you get far enough along that gradient, valuation, at least in the short term, means absolutely nothing because whoever owns the stock does not care about how expensive it is. Now, eventually, uh, you would think that the perception and reality converge. Uh, so if something is extremely expensive and it doesn't create economic value, then eventually the stock will decline. But that's over maybe a five-year period. So it's a very difficult thing to, like, you can't just go short stocks because they're expensive. Then in some cases where the growth is exponential, then uh, you can underestimate the power of the geometric growth. So if I have a business that's growing revenues at 50% a year uh, with very high gross margins, then I don't have to do that for very long before it grows into the valuation where it's currently priced. Now, typically what happens is it doesn't grow into the valuation because the stock goes up so much that it reflects yet more growth in the future. Uh, and you can see that with a lot of these SaaS names. So that seems hard to read compared to maybe times in the past when things just didn't move as quickly. I think that that is probably true. Technology has a big effect on not only the practice of investing, but the underlying fundamentals of businesses. All businesses are, to some degree, technology businesses because you can use technology within your business to create perhaps a temporary advantage. But we've gone pretty long here, um, and these topics, uh, I think there's a lot to explore. Um, maybe we'll take a stab at a, uh, another podcast on this sometime in the future. 
Yeah, definitely activist position um, is an interesting topic for the future. And you mentioned the continuum of uncertainty. Uh, we talk about that in our forthcoming book as well. And it's a good, good uh, lead in to remind people that uh, our book um, entitled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide Toward Improving Financial Decision Making, the S in bias is a dollar sign, is a nod to the investment uh, component of the book. Uh, we discuss that, uh, that very topic in more detail along with um, many other tips on value investing. And that'll be out in uh, November of 2019. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be fun. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.